Good morning. Psalm 95 is where we're going to be studying God's Word this morning. As always, it's printed in your bulletin. Uh, or I invite you to open your Bible to it. Psalm 95. It's a psalm which has been used extensively throughout church history. For example, in the uh, Anglican liturgy and the Lutheran liturgies, Psalm 95 is sung um, at the beginning of every day during the morning prayer service. So morning prayers, Anglican and Lutheran. In the Roman Catholic liturgy, it's sung as an introduction to nighttime prayers, or what we call matins. Um, it, the Psalm, Psalm 95 is the venite, Latin for come. Venite laudemus dominum. Come, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come, venite, before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. Yes, the flock under his care. The final section here, we covered it a few months ago when we were studying through the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. It is based on an episode earlier in Israel's history when they, they end up getting very angry with God because of his, his seeming failure to provide you know, the provisions that they needed in the desert. And so the words... Two words are here that are kind of unfamiliar to us. Masa, which means quarreling and shaking one's fist at God. And Meribah, which means testing. Because the Israelites, it says, tested the Lord by saying, is God really out here among us or not? And so it finishes with his word of wisdom. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I, what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. You could be a famous artist whose work is featured in all of the galleries all around the world. And I could be your biggest admirer. I could have uh, traveled to all of those galleries and seen every piece of art which you have ever created or every piece that has ever been featured. Or you could be a musician and I could be your biggest fan. I could have memorized all the lyrics to all of your songs, have attended dozens of your concerts, uh, could sing along uh, with, with every word that you say on stage. But until we come face to face, I don't really know you. I don't truly know you. It says, Venite, come. We're supposed to rouse ourselves with that word. We're supposed to remind ourselves to come. Uh, but where are we coming? It literally says, let us come before his panim. 
Panim is the Hebrew word for face. Venite Panim. If we're going to mix up Latin and Hebrew together. Venite Panim. We're to come before his face. Now, what does that mean? Uh, we know that you know, on one sense, God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. And we know that since uh, he's everywhere um, and he's a spirit, he doesn't have a literal hand or a literal foot or a literal knee. What does it mean when it talks about, about his panim? It's saying that we are to come and not worship in general, but, but we are to come to him in a way that is personal and real and intimate, where we really have intimate uh, fellowship with God. When we come in here and he, he becomes real to us, and he does something in, inside of us, he's present to us. You ever notice when you're having a conversation and the other person will not look you in the eyes? How, unco- how like, there's a disconnect here. If, if we can't, if you won't sit here and talk and look me in the eye, then I, I don't feel like I know you. You don't feel like, but here in worship, we, uh, we are coming to meet him face to face. We, won't, we don't show up just to occupy a seat. We come to, to see him eye to eye and to express our love for him just as he in turn expresses his love for us. Secondly, so first we, we come, we come venite panim. Secondly, we come to sing. A curious fact you discover, one of the major changes that the Reformation brought to the worship practices in the Middle Ages is that up until that point, the Roman Catholic Church had outlawed congregational singing. You weren't allowed to do what you just have done so far today. In fact, one of the, um, one of the three heresies that Jan Hus, the Czech priest, when he was burned at the stake in the year 1415, one of the three heresies he was convicted of, one of them was his encouraging his congregation to sing. The Reformation restored this to us. Notice what it says in verse 2. The psalmist says, Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. How do you let your love for your gracious Father pour out of your heart? You open your lips and you sing. You know, song is the universal language of love. You open your lips and you let it fly. Love is always expressed in song. And that's why when people get saved in the Bible, for instance, Isaiah 51 verse 1, it says the, the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. When people get saved, they always sing. And we have all these songs written in the Bible. There's a song of Moses, a song of Miriam, a song of Deborah, a song of Barak, a song of David, a song of Hannah. In the New Testament, there are hymns to Christ in John's Gospel, in Romans, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Timothy, and Hebrews. There are doxologies scattered all around the Bible. And, and there's songs that fill all the pages of Revelation. Not to mention the fact that the largest book in the Bible is what? It's the Psalms. One of the things that Mark says is a peculiar people is we're always singing when we get together. That's a mark of the Christian faith. We're always singing. Come thou found of every blessing. Remember how the hymn, wonderful hymn, come thou found of every, how does that begin? Come thou found of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. You see this cello right here? If you were to leave the cello out for 24 hours, come back um, 24 hours later and start to strum it. You don't strum cellos. You, you, you bow it, you play it. 
If you were to do that, you would find out that that cello is out of tune. Leave it sitting out. Uh, temperature, humidity, all of that's going to play with the tension on the strings. The wood is going to flex. That cellos will always go out of tune, won't they? And so will guitars, and so will hearts. And so what we need to do prior to worship on every Sunday morning is we ask the Holy Spirit to tune my, my heart, get my heart ready that I might sing thy praise. Here at All Saints, uh, we try to sing praises which are rich theologically, rich poetically and in their content. We do this because we want our children to know hymns which they'll recall later in life that, that direct them in a good manner. I mean, in the hour of temptation, I want my kids to, to say in the hour of temptation, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, Though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, yet thou art merciful and mighty, merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. I, I want them to say that. When you go away to college and you find your faith buffeted uh, and attacked, we want you to remember that in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. When you are afraid and you're trembling on the insides, I want you to remember that a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And frankly, friends, the way that our kids come to love these hymns, especially our little kids, the way they come to really love the hymns is if we sing them all together well. (laughs) It doesn't help them at all to stand next to a father who's just kind of mumbling uh, with his lips. I mean, the quickest way, honestly, the quickest way to lose your kids away from the faith later on in life is to have a dad who doesn't sing. I mean, I know that's a little hyperbolic, but in a sense, it's true. It's to have a father who is not on fire, who just shows up every Sunday morning. You'll lose your kids if you do that. And I want to say, too, that God has blessed us with so many talented musicians who... (laughs) who assist us in singing with joy, who, who make it very easy for us to, to truly you know, bust our guts. And um, thank you for all of, all of that that you do. What comes next in verse 1? Look at, look at it with me. It says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us, let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Um, what would that look like at All Saints? <laughs> How would we put the, the whole shouting into practice in our subculture. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, it just doesn't seem to fit us, does it? <laughs> Probably in my Pentecostal days, I think I involved, was in church services that did a little bit of shouting, but I don't know that I've, have we ever shouted as Presbyterians? Uh, but surely the point is that the, the psalmist is saying we are to be loud. There's no place for passivity in worship. And I'll say this to you, if you hear something in this worship service that you really agree with, something that you, that you know is true and it especially resonates inside of you, you are more than welcome to vocalize it and say, amen, in the middle of the worship service. <laughs> like the first, the first service today, they weren't that quick. It, 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 it took a little more prodding. If you agree with something, you can let it be made known. I mean, let's have more voices shouting to the rock of our salvation because that's cool. That's what we should be doing. 
I'm going to chicken out here and and do one of those things where where you say, he said it and not me. This is a pastoral preacher technique where you want to say something hard to your congregation, but you don't want to be the bad guy for saying it. So he said it. Ray Cortez, pastor of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Florida. Incidentally, Ray Cortez, one of the greatest preachers you'll ever listen to. He preached at our General Assembly. It was probably back in 2000, I'll say 2015, And Brian Douglas, the social pastor here, ended up getting a copy of that sermon. I don't know why he did it, but he he uploaded the sermon to the All Saints Presbyterian Church website. You know who is the most, what is the most listened to sermon uh, on our church website? It definitely isn't me. (laughs) It's Ray Cortez by about a figure of of 10. Here's what he says to his, his church. He says, it is what's dumbfounding, what's dumbfounding is on Sunday morning, We can state the grand glorious facts of the redemption of Jesus Christ. We can talk about the glories of his salvation, the magnificence of the gospel, and yet there's too many Presbyterians whose faces look like Mount Rushmore when doing so. This is a sickness that is endemic to us. The lack of emotional connection in our worship is a sickness that is endemic to Presbyterian Christianity. Somehow your theology has to inform your face and your voice about what you actually believe. His words, not mine. (laughs) No hate mail. Don't send it. I'm not reading it. Um, What if I just don't feel it on Sunday morning? I don't feel the joy. I don't feel the presence of God. Should it be a choice that I... Should, should I choose to sing if I want to, depending on whether or not I feel like it? And I realize that not every Sunday is going to be head over heels, blown away by the awesome power, love, and majesty of God. Because no relationship works that way. No marriage is like that. You're not constantly doing cartwheels. It ebbs and flows and fluctuates. But, but it's, not a, it's not a choice. It's not our prerogative. Um, we don't... We sing... Because we were made to sing. (laughs) Throughout biblical history, in every place and circumstance, singing has been second nature for the people of faith. We sing, we must sing, we must sing loud, we must sing with all of our hearts, we must sing because the gospel is true. Because all of the things that we say are actually true. Third, let's move on to verse 6. Not only the Bible does the psalm, rather, teach us that we must venite panim, we come before his face, venite with our voices, we come before him to sing. It also tells us that we are to use our whole bodies in worship. In worship, we kneel, we bow, we stand, we raise our hands. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Kneeling, if you're familiar at all, it's... It's a very traditional posture in churches during the confession of sin. Um, I wish we had kneelers in here. The, for those of you who don't know what a kneeler is, it's, it attaches to the pew back in front of you or to the chair back in front of you. And it's kind of a padded, cushioned area that you can prop your knees, knees up on. Um, I, I wish we had kneelers. If we ever do, by God's grace, build a new building, have a new sanctuary, that's going to be on the, the top of one of the first things on my list. There was a pre- church in our presbytery about 30 years ago that ended up installing kneelers. And they used it every Sunday for the confession of sin. Well, there's one man in the congregation. He wasn't interested in kneeling. He said, 
um, he, he said, he came up to the pastor afterwards, I, I'm not going to do it. I don't kneel for anybody, is what he said. And the pastor replied, yeah, you will. <laughs> if not now, someday. Because in essence, this whole universe is moving to that point when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. What are we doing when we kneel before the Lord, our maker? We're obviously in our posture, you know, making ourselves low. It's an act of contrition. We manifest in a bodily way our humility and sin before a holy God. And so one of the things I, I try and do when I'm praying prayer of confession is, I mean, I'm almost curled up in a little ball. I'm so, my head is bowed low. Um, I, I love the, the implicit petition that's made in the act of kneeling because when we kneel down we're like leveled down to the dust before our holy God and we are in essence asking him to pick us up raise me up from this lowly state that is what happens when we have the absolution the assurance of pardon delivered to us after afterwards he's raising us up why do we use our bodies why ought we to use our bodies when we worship It's because we bend and contort our bodies so that our hearts will later follow. So your heart is that reluctant dog who uh, you want to take it on the walk in this direction. The dog is pulling on the chain and he he doesn't want to go that way. Our hearts, don't you find your heart is often reluctant to go the place it needs to go? Our body, we move our bodies in order to make our, our hearts actually follow. So raise your hands in prayer. Raise your hands in song. Bow low to the ground. Um, I like to raise my hands, but I do it you know, the Presbyterian fashion. You never get above your shoulder height. <laughs> when I'm, it, you'll never see me up here. No, that's... Woo! <laughs> you get it to right about here. That's bold. That's bold. We move our bodies so our hearts will follow. Verse 3. Notice what he does next. He enumerates the excellencies of God. He says, For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. He's not only worshiping God with his emotions, he's obviously worshiping God with his mind as well. He actively engages his mind when he's in God's presence in worship. There's a famous Teddy Roosevelt story. Roosevelt was... Uh, as you probably know, a true outdoorsman. He loved nature. He loved to go outside. Uh, Apparently, on some occasions, after maybe a big meeting, he would take his colleagues outside, and and he'd tell them to look up at the stars. He'd say, hey, you see that patch of light right up there? That's the near constellation of Pegasus. And inside of it, that's the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It's as large as our Milky Way. It's, it's one of 100 million galaxies, and it contains 100 billion suns, all of them larger than ours. Okay, now I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. <laughs> it's funny. When you ask somebody about worship, you ask a worship question, it's almost like you're asking a question about tastes and preferences. Vanilla, strawberry, chocolate. You ask about worship at a given church, it's is that butter pecan? You know, what are your tastes? What are your preferences? What do you like about worship? What's the flavor or style of the music? What's the preaching like? Worship should call us again and again, you know, out of that type of stuff. 
week in and week out to remember this great God that we get to worship. I mean, in his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks and everything in between. Verse 7, and not only is he a great creator, he is is also a great redeemer and shepherd. For we are the people of his pasture, it says. We are the flock under his care. You know, when somebody asks you how was worship today, you know the answer you should give? You say it was terrible if you didn't meet him. And it was magnificent if you did. That's the ultimate, that's the ultimate, um, you know, question, criteria. Did I meet him? Did I come before his face and actually meet him today? Moving on to the final part of the psalm. The last four verses, I said it a little bit during the reading, but these four verses are summons to learn from a previous generation's mistakes. Why did the Israelites, why did their hearts when they were in the desert, why did they stray so far from the Lord? Uh, The answer is, it was because of their discontentment. They were barely outside the walls of Egypt when they began to grumble among themselves saying, I don't like what you're feeding us. I like the leeks and the melons and the garlic we have back there. We had plenty to eat back there in Egypt. You brought us out here to torture us. I don't like the amount of water you're giving us. I don't like the taste of the manna. I don't like that we have to pick it up. I don't like that we don't have meat. I don't like this. I don't like that. It's, it's just one big, long string of discontentment, isn't it? Imagine you hear through some social worker, there's a poor orphan, 12-year-old boy living in a foreign land that if somebody doesn't adopt him and take him away and take him to be their own, he's going to be sold into slavery. You fly over there, and you cut through all the red tape, and you pay the government unbelievable amounts of money to adopt the child. You have all these kickbacks because of graft and corruption that you have to, you have to get through. You, you exhaust your resources. You essentially spend your entire net worth to bring this child and to bring him back with you, adopt him and bring him into your family. You get home, and three weeks in, three weeks into his stay at your house, he says, why don't I have a flat screen TV in my room? Why don't I have an iPhone 8? Is there such a thing as an iPhone? Are they up to the 8 yet? Why don't I have an iPhone 8? Some kind of parent you are, forget it, I'm out of here. What would you say? You'd look at him and you'd say through your tears, son, I've done everything I can for you. I love you more than you can ever imagine. Don't walk out that door. Listen to my, heed my voice of warning You're only 12 years old. You won't make it a minute on the street. Heed my voice. Don't don't walk out that door. Don't let your discontentment destroy you. It is actually discontentment that destroys people. If you go back to Romans chapter 1, the God's indictment upon the human race, the two two biggest manifestations of human sinfulness is our propensity toward idolatry and our lack of thankfulness. We, they would not give thanks to God. And if you know anything about yourself, you know that you are an ungrateful little wretch. I wonder how much of the stupid things that we do, how much of that isn't ultimately in some manner or another because of it, rooted and motivated by our own ingratitude. It's got to be a lot. And so we push back against that. We must push back against that. Sunday gives us a weekly opportunity to look around and discover all the reasons we have, great, we have to be grateful to our God. I'm starting to lose my voice here. Apologize. <clears throat> Finally, let me conclude with an excerpt from an article 
I read on the Desiring God, God website this week um, about worship. It seemed particularly fitting from Psalm 95. The author writes, On any given Sunday, coming through the doors of your church, there are doctors, farmers, young parents, experienced grandparents, single students, married executives. I mean, the, the gathered body of Christ represents an incredible array of experiences. Lots of different people. Different hopes and dreams. Different fears and insecurities. Different struggles and temptations. No two people in the pew are exactly the same. And no two people are in the exact same place spiritually. There are those who come in soaring through the highest mountain peaks. And then there are those who come trudging through the deepest valleys. Some are in need of the comfort of God, which makes us lie down in green pastures and restores our souls. Others need to face the the rod of God, to be convicted of their sin by a loving father who disciplines those whom he loves. Some come in deeply feeling and experiencing and knowing the love of Jesus, and others are struggling at that moment to believe that God is love at all. Consider then this marvelous thing we we call corporate worship. We do all the same stuff in here. We sing the same songs, recite the same creeds, pray the same prayers, sit under the same scriptures. But we're also different with so many different needs. You'd think, well, well, with that, I mean, that's the most unlikely place where God could extend to me the particular help that I want in my need. Don't we need something more specific to the state of our, our own souls? And yet, what does he do? He uses all the common stuff to minister to our varied hearts in exactly the way each of us requires. Every week is a miracle. Because on every week, the Spirit of God that dwells within applies the truth of God's Word to the hearts of His children, specifically. By God's Word of truth, that's how we are sanctified. And, And by God's sacrament, that's how we are strengthened. And when we come together each week, this multifaceted mosaic called the body of Christ, all of our individual needs, and somehow God meets me right where I am. I think that happens more often than not. Now, not every Sunday. I know you leave on some Sundays probably, and you're like, nope. <laughs> but Based on the feedback you give me, I mean, there's so, it's so frequent that somebody will come up to me and, and say something along the lines of, have you been bugging my house? Because that was exactly the conversation I had with, with so-and-so earlier in the week. Have, have you been tape recording me? I mean, because somehow you seem to know ex- exactly what I was thinking. I mean, of course, I don't know any of it. But it's the glory of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who... In John chapter 3, it says the spirit is like the wind. And in many ways, a Christian who comes ready to worship is like a sailor. And sailors can't generate the wind. They can't create the wind. But sailors are skilled and ready to arrange the sails so that when the wind shows up, great things will happen. They, are, they come ready for the wind. Do you? Venite is, an op, is, is our way of saying... Come ready for the wind. Come with voices that are, that are tuned to sing His praise, with bodies that are willing, with emotions, minds, and wills that are malleable. Do that. Hoist your sail. 
and the wind will catch us. Amen. Let's pray. We ask, Father, that you would make us more skillful worshipers because of what we have studied here in Psalm 95. Make us a worshiping community whose hearts are tuned to sing your praise each Sunday. And most of all, make us a worshiping community that sees Jesus Christ. Because it's truly in Christ we, we behold you face to face. In Christ, through Christ, we are moved by your power, beauty, love, and grace. We see it all in the face of your Son and in a way that will transform us. So send your Holy Spirit upon us every Sunday that we may catch the wind and may all the praise, honor, and glory be yours, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God's people said, Amen.